Thank you, Nicolas. Time is starting. Um, when Nicolas came, uh, I think, half a year ago to, to Singapore, um, we had a meeting and he asked me, Frans, do you have any idea to have uh, an interesting topic? I said, yeah, maybe let's do something different. Let's try to get some of the traders together because that does not happen a lot in conferences. So what you see today in front of you is a carefully hand-picked panel of uh, one of the, I think, uh, a selection of the most esteemed global and more regional uh, trading companies, um, diversified in commodities, dry, wet, agriculture, coal, whatever there is, we have it here in the panel. Um, I think the idea is that we have a Q&A session as well, Nicolas, or not? Uh, okay, we will, tr we will try. Um, we have on my left side, um, for you, right, uh, Andrew, Andrew Barker from uh, Cargill. Cargill founded in 1865 in the US, one of the biggest commodity traders in the world. Uh, major business in agricultural, uh, mainly uh, one of the biggest grain traders as well. Uh, Bjorn works for uh, Golden Stena, which is a joint venture between uh, Golden Agri and Stena. Uh, Stena being one of the largest uh, Scandinavian shipping companies with a very, very long history, not only shipping, but much more. Mm -hmm. but and Golden Agri, the listed uh, palm oil uh, in Singapore, uh, listed palm oil trader and producer. Uh, Michael, uh, working for Noble. I think people living and working in Singapore all are very familiar with Noble and what's going on there. Uh, Michael runs the charter decks. Uh, commodities, uh, I think at this point of time, uh, you do a lot in coal, but you can talk about it later. Uh, and then Rasmus. Um, working for Travigura, one of the largest uh, also private trading houses uh, based in Geneva and Singapore. Um, yeah, a large oil products energy trader. Uh, all of them living or have lived in Singapore. So you can see how important uh, the trading houses are for Singapore. I think Singapore is the largest uh, commodity trading hub in Asia and has the ambition and I think the potential to become the global, one of the global leading trading hubs worldwide. Um, so let's start with uh, the first question to, uh, to the panelists. Where in terms of uh, countries, geographies and uh, which commodities do you see a major growth in, in, in Asia? Um, so, who wants to take the first question? Okay, I'll take it. Okay, thanks, Franz. Do I need to push? No, I don't. Um, <laughs> first of all, Franz, thank you for inviting me along to this panel. Um, Asia is a very, very big part of Noble's business. Um, I'll say the, the company was started around Asia, and Asia is where we conduct probably 85% of our business. In terms of regions, um, we see Indonesia as you know, coming with tremendous growth. And obviously, China will continue to grow. Plus, India is a very, very big part of our business. So India, Indonesia, China, Vietnam, that's our main areas. And we see significant growth in those areas. 
for, for which commodities? <laughs> for uh, for coal, um, you know, I, I'm not going to talk about grain. I'll leave that to to Andrew. But um, but non-grain, we see very big growth there. Well, I think just to add to that, I think you know, from from Cargo's point of view, I agree there. Sort of the, the primaries on the dry bulk side in terms of where the growth is going to be. I think we see China particularly. Um, continue to grow on the iron ore side. When you think about the one belt, one road as well, in terms of what that's going to bring, I think that's also going to support the Chinese steel industry. So I think that's going to be very supportive from that point of view. Um, if you looked at Martin Stopford's um, presentation this morning, it also talked about how things have been shifting over a period of time in terms of the growth in Asia. And so we see that as well. Uh, and that's also, again, why we've actually situated yourself here in Singapore, because you know, we've been here now for 13 years. We've grown the team from about 12 people to over 50 now. So we still believe there's a lot of growth here, potentially in Asia. On the oil trading side, um, Asia, of course, is uh, an important region. Um, if we look at 2017, Traffic Oil had 40% of revenue, oil revenue coming from Asia, 55% of the metals revenue coming from Asia. Uh, we see continued strong demand growth. Uh, India and China, in our view, are adding about a million barrels a day of demand every year, just between them. Currently, about 80% of all cars in India are two-wheelers. It just takes a small transition into four-wheelers for that to have a significant demand impact. China is now the largest car market in the world, 20 million cars sold. US has 17 million. There's quite a lot of potential there for demand growth. Um, and if you look back from last year, 42% 40, of cars sold in China was SUVs. So, so there's definitely base for, for growth there. Um, and yes, uh, we see Asia as, as being a <coughs> continuous major, major contributor to our growth. Yeah. All right, and uh, myself and our company are involved in palm oil, palm oil production and palm oil trade, uh, which of course is much uh, smaller than uh, the guys next to me. But, uh, uh, to say it simple, Europe and US is uh, very stable. The volumes doesn't increase, uh, while India grows by 10 to 15 percent. And if you include Bangladesh and Pakistan, basically where the middle class is uh, coming up, that's where the uh, increased demand of uh, palm oil goes. And palm oil goes 85 percent, maybe 90 even now, to food. So it's a pure food product that we are talking about. Europe and US uh, still use for energy part, but uh, yeah, Asia is the, is the growing hub. Okay, and the, the word one belt, one road was already uh, mentioned. Uh, do you think that huge initiative uh, has, has an impact on, on your role as, 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 a, as a trading company? Or do you see that as a positive development, a threat? What, what, what is the position? I can start there. I mean, we, we already see uh, One Belt, One Road having a, a demand impact uh, uh, on countries across Asia. Uh, to give certain examples, Pakistan, for instance, uh, we see a strong diesel demand uptick. Uh, it's port and infrastructure uh, construction. Uh, we see Kazakhstan and other Southeast Asian countries already increasing demand, also linked to One Belt, One Road. Uh, looking ahead, uh, once, it, once this infrastructure is built, uh, there will be significant usage of what is being constructed today. So there'll be a lot of incremental demand from that, which I think everybody in this panel, anyway, probably will be participating in. Uh, 
traders, which is where we are, will be needed uh, to serve the traditional role of helping source and deliver uh, commodities. Uh, so what One Belt, One Road, at least in our view, does, it, it creates new demand, it creates new pathways, new consumers, and ultimately new clients. So it's, it's, it's a positive from yeah. our side. Um, for the palm oil trade, since we are based in Asia already, we don't really see a huge impact in the um, direct uh, link to the One Belt, One Road. But indirect, uh, we think, the, again, the countries where the One Belt, One Road goes through, um, the consumption will increase, uh, people will have more money, and by that they will eat more, which means more palm oil uh, consumption, basically. So indirect, we believe very much in it, but yeah. For shipping, of course, it's uh, wonderful, the full concept. Yeah, no, I'd agree as well. I mean, in terms of, you know, it's going to increase the, the wealth in the region, uh, and so it's only going to be good for the trade mm. overall. And I think also, as I mentioned before, if you think about the whole steel business as well, well that's going to be very supportive for, for steel products. So that's good for the iron ore trade into China. Yeah, I mean, f fully agree what everyone else has been saying. I mean, we can see from our steel clients, they're already talking about increased steel consumption <coughs> because of, of the fact of the impact of the one bill, one road. Guys, you agree too much with each other. It has to be a bit right. more. <laughs> so, try, try to ask more okay, controversial let's try to questions. Get, 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 get some other questions. Uh, get a bit different opinions. Uh, um, if you look at the, the top 10 uh, trading companies, uh, the, the aggregate revenue is about a staggering one point five trillion US dollars, that's huge. So obviously you guys are uh, big, There's a, you're big charters. Um, you need a lot of, sorry, uh, you need a lot of charters, a lot of ship owners to, to work with on a daily basis. How, how does, what is the position of your company? How does direct vessel ownership fit into your strategy? Because traders normally uh, like a fast turnover of, 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 of assets. So to, to employ your capital long-term in, 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 in owning, owning uh, terminals or owning, own, owning vessels, how does that work? Maybe uh, Rasmus for you, because uh, uh, you just placed yes, an order. I, I can start. Uh, as as p most people here probably is, is aware of, we, we've done a fairly sizable uh, leasing transaction in 2017 of uh, 32 uh, Gruden product tankers. Um, from a trading house perspective, uh, it's not a strategic intention to employ equity into ship owning. Um, and 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 fact is, if, if there hadn't been access to uh, Chinese leasing funding, uh, Trafigura would would not have engaged in the position that, that we have taken uh, because it's not so far, at least historically, a strategic objective of the group to employ significant equity into shipping. Um, in terms of uh, usage of the ship, uh, the ships, um, Trafigura, if, if we look back in, in 2015, we, we did about 1,600 fixtures as a wet freight team, and last year that became around 3,000 fixtures. So there has been significant growth. Um, we've had a common question from a lot of people as well. Does it mean that there will still be cargoes to fix in, in the market? Um, to which the answer is very clear that Trafigur will remain a 
significant spot charger of third-party tonnage. Um, we have historically over the last four years done 80% uh, of all our cargos with uh, third-party owners. Uh, and the fact that we have engaged in this leasing position, we, we don't ex expect a significant change. But what probably will change is that um, uh, the composition of the fleet in terms of uh, uh, we are less depending on the time charter market, you can say. But, but, but equity employed into shipping has historically not been one for Trafigura and, and probably in the future will neither be. Right, okay, so we, um, we move 30, last year we moved 35 million tons of dry cargo. We only do dry cargo. Um, and our fleet is a combination of owned ships where we own 16, some fully owned, others in joint ventures with steel mills uh, or, or other types of receivers. Um, for us, it's all about optionality. Our cargoes quite often require optionality where we shift the port, so we do something. So we prefer not to do voice charter because there we feel very limited. Um, so we either do time charter or, or we use our own ships. Um, the strategy going forward is to be asset light, um, and that's why we, are, we started to sell some of our ships. Um, and the model going forward will be very much around time charter. Currently, we operate 55 ships. Um, and as I mentioned, out of those, 16 are owned. Uh, but for, all, for us, it's all about flexibility, as things very often change. Yeah, <clears throat> I fully agree with Rasmus and Michael. So let me give you a little bit different view, maybe. So what I feel and what I've seen in the last six years with uh, Golden Stena is that, um, for example, probably one of our biggest in volume partner is actually uh, Cargill. Uh, the dry, uh, the wet side. Uh, they do a lot of our cargoes, right? Um, we ourselves uh, are doing more and more on our own cargoes, mainly on time shorter vessels, a short time shorter. So I think it's inevitable that um, we shorters will be more involved in the shipping. Uh, we don't mind uh, small owners, but we don't really want to fix small owners, perhaps. We could fix them on time shorter and control the tolling ourselves. And I, I think that will be a trend, of course, depends on the market and the times, but um, our receivers get bigger and bigger, uh, the supply side get bigger and bigger, the ports uh, infrastructure improve, at least on the palm oil side, which mainly is done uh, dependent on India and China and uh, Indonesia and Malaysia. So by that you need uh, bigger vessels and bigger players to work with. So that's the trend I see. That we will be involved, yeah. I mean, from Cargo's point of view, we don't want to be ship owners. That's not our strength. And um, also going to Rasmus' point, too, is that you know, we don't believe that actually putting equity into the ships themselves really is what we're after. Um, we much prefer to pay the long-term time charter or the spot time charter uh, play. So today we have around about 650 ships, but we don't own anything. Um, doesn't mean to say that you don't see our names associated from time to time on an owning side. Um, but if it was, it was more from a trading play. So in other words, looking at it from an, an asset play, but on a short-term basis. And how do you make a selection of, 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 of the charters? How does that work internally? Okay, I can start. Um, I mean, ideally, um, we want to fix modern tonnage, high-quality tonnage. Uh, it's, it's the first parameter. Uh, there's a price parameter. Uh, we, we have been engaging with our biggest owners and uniting them in forums together, trying to say and, and to, to tell them our, 
of our intentions. The, the challenge at times, I mean, is that when you fix 3,000 fixtures a year, you end up in position where you cannot fix your top 10 clients. Uh, but Trafigura is moving more and more towards sub 15 years of age tonnage. Uh, and it requires extraordinary approval if you move beyond 15 years. And we're getting stricter and stricter. Uh, also from an environmental perspective. I mean, older ships are just burning more fuel, uh, which is also one of the concepts of, and reasons for Trafigura being one of the founding partners between global in, within Global Maritime Forum, to participate and to learn, and also hopefully to be able to participate in making it a greener place. Yeah, I mean, for us, it, it, it's about having, you know, reliable transport, uh, correctly priced. Um, right ship is a great tool, and we use that to a great extent uh, to make sure that we weed out any ships which are substandard from a technical angle. Um, and we have very, very rigid credit control that looks after the credit angle. Um, uh, so, you know, basically, as Rasmus says, I mean, with our volume, you know, we, we can't pick and choose and sort of only do business with our favorite owners. Um, but we try to build strong relationships um, where owners, where the owners understand us, and there's a, a connection uh, between the charters and the people taking the decision at the owners. So it doesn't become just a numbers transaction, but actually everyone, or we try to have um, a, a personal relationship. Easier said than done, but we find that works long term better. So for you who does wet uh, shortening, you know that palm oil is the underdog of the wet side. Basically, if your vessel floats, then uh, we can take it. Um, probably <laughs> molasses is worse, but uh, hopefully there are no molasses, guys. Yeah. That is changing. As I said, our customer gets bigger. Um, you know the sustainability aspect of palm oil. Um, just to give you an idea. When we started, there were 10 people in the sustainability department in Golden Agri. Today, it's about 280 people working in the sustainability department. So far, no one has really looked at the transportation side, but we actually have taken the decision to uh, go with right ship as well and start implementing uh, uh, some kind of vetting system into the palm oil trade. Um, I guess we have to start on a low level and then work ourselves up, just like uh, you guys have done on the dry side. Uh, but it's becoming more and more important, even for uh, a trade that doesn't perhaps need it. Where the receiver, there is not a push from the receiver side. It's more from a sustainability, uh, you know, um, perspective, and also to follow the trends with uh, ecologically banking consumption and stuff. Mm. Yeah. So I guess it's very similar to the rest of the groups. I mean, we look at risk in three different buckets. So we have like the credit counterparty risk. So we're really making sure that who you're dealing with know are the right counterparties that you want to deal with and we keep on monitoring that from on a day-to-day -day basis we're also looking at in terms of the market risks in other words what are the changes in terms of the market conditions so what is that risk exposure for the different size buckets so what you got on the capes and the panamaxes etc and then lastly you're looking at the operational risk so making sure that we're going for more of the modern fleet uh, looking for the fleet which is actually the better in terms of fuel consumption and that's why we use right ship to make sure that we're monitoring that uh, and managing that and also as well looking in terms of not taking the F and G vessels, which are you know, the more polluting vessels today. Hmm. Okay, that's very clear. And in terms of um, uh, sidestep, in terms of uh, technical management, I know that there are a lot of uh, third party uh, managers here, so very keen on doing business with you. Is there any, any business out there uh, for them to, to deal with you guys? Or do you think you can do it all better yourself? 
No, I think we're quite conscious that we cannot do it better ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, obviously, ship management is a, uh, okay, uh, maybe I, I, I dare to say it's sophisticated. It's, it's moving towards more quality control. Uh, there's a lot of data that needs to be owned and there's a lot higher and stringent requirements. Uh, I mean, we've gone through a, a very uh, uh, determined uh, process, uh, selecting technical managers and shortlisting technical managers for the bare boat fleet that we have coming. Uh, and, and we've seen and, and intensively been, uh, been starting out with 15 different tech managers and shortlisting it down then to five and then to to four and so so um, I mean no tech management we it's not our business and, and other people do that better than us we're conscious of that. Yeah. Michael, oh. Franz, great question. I was waiting for that question. Thank you very much. Um, we believe we can do it better, and we are doing it better. We have started our own technical management company called Omega. Um, Sorry to do a bit of a sales speech here, but I can't help myself. Uh, at the end of the room, please stand up, Satya. That was not the idea of my... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so Satya runs our technical management business, and please have a talk with him later. We can do it better than anyone else. I have no <laughs> doubt in my mind. Sorry. I couldn't help myself. Okay. Why, why can you do it better than anyone else? Um, because um, it, it's not that complicated. At the end of the day, if you have the right team, then it's quite straightforward. Um, if you have someone in between, they obviously have to make a living, and that's what they do. So you leave a margin on the table. It's all about having the right team and the right contacts, which we do. Okay, I'll ask you the same question uh, one year from now. Yeah. <laughs> I'd be delighted. <laughs> yeah, why not take the opportunity? I've had uh, the last month uh, two meetings with our technical manager uh, discussing about uh, energy management and um, scared me a bit how little energy they have put in to actually look at our vessel and energy management. So I've not been the most happy person when it comes to a third-party technical manager. I think, uh, you know, if you're, energy, uh, if you're a technical manager out there, you should really, really uh, help the owners and uh, push the barrier. It should not be the owners who basically push you to uh, look into that, right? Um, it should come, you should be in the forefront. So maybe I should go with Michael. Please do, we'll give you a good deal. Yeah, yeah, we, go. <laughs> <laughs> right, well, we have a very small technical department and we need to have a, a few people, but I mean, that's not our strength. And the fact that we don't own ships today, there's really no need for us to actually grow that capacity. So we can always tap into that, into the marketplace if we need it. Okay, um, maybe make a, a go to a different topic, which maybe connects to the session we had um, before, the, um, uh, before the coffee break. Um, traders are logistical companies um, that transform commodities uh, in, in three ways. In, in space, by ways of transport, time, um, by ways of storage, and form, uh, blending and processing. Um, now, with the whole focus on digitalization, sorry for all these buzzwords, uh, digitalization and blockchain and whatever have you, uh, all these uh, new technology is going so fast, having impact, even on a boring industry like banking, uh, where, I, where I work myself. How, how do you see that trend uh, impacting your business model, if any, and how, do you, how does your company anticipate on this? Bjorn, why don't mm. we start with you this time? Yeah, okay. Um, 
I think, uh, I think you as a bank are very happy that we don't have uh, blockchain at the moment. Uh, we were involved in a case where basically, um, yeah, Palm oil to India, for example, it's a five-day voyage. So there's no way that the original bill of lading would end up uh, in the port where you discharge uh, when you arrive. And um, the banks, they sit on the bill of lading and uh, they sit on the letter of credit. And uh, if the letter of credit fails, they can always go to the ship owner with a bill of lading. So if we had a blockchain in that sense, that would be very nice for the ship owner because today we discharge against LOI most of the time. So I think there is a big... Um, uh, reluctance uh, from the industry to actually uh, take in uh, a big um, uh, disruptor as uh, blockchain might be. Uh, hopefully I'm wrong. Uh, what we have done in uh, Golan Stena together with uh, Golan Agri and Stena is uh, nothing new. I, I think Clarkson has a very good program about it. Basically you buy the AIS data, uh, you put uh, all the vessel on a map uh, in your system, and what we do is we track uh, all the palm oil ports, which vessel are coming in, vessel, which vessel are going out, uh, where are the cargoes going. So we know pretty well uh, how much cargo is going out of Indonesia and Malaysia. And we also know uh, to a big extent what our competitors are doing. So then the question is, what do you do with that knowledge, right? And I, I guess there, um, everybody's a bit struggling at the moment uh, to implement that uh, data. Um, I also think that in the future, shipping will be a let, uh, less, um, uh, at least in the tanker business today, it's very personal, right? Uh, I, th I think we will go towards a more industrial uh, shipping um, where, for example, brokers uh, will have harder to, you know, uh, they, they have to do something really to keep the space in between the charter and the broker because today, I can easily in our system say, okay, which vessels are available uh, in this port at this time? And then I could basically go to these owners and call them straight away instead of having a broker doing that job for me. So I think we, we see something coming up from a shortering perspective, right? I, I don't believe that we will go out and auction a cargo. If I was uh, Cargill maybe, uh, which I suppose have so much cargo, I would probably do it, but um, for, for smaller ones, maybe not yet, but... Uh, yeah, I think it's an interesting future, and I think we have to embrace it, like you all have said. Andrew, it's your yeah. view. I mean, I think um, you know, digitalization is coming at us, and you know, if you think from a trading point of view, you know, we've had to adapt already because in the past traders have been able to sort of have a lot of information to be able to trade around that information. Today, everybody can get that information, the push of a button. It's all there on the internet, so you have to adapt. And so traders have been adapting and trying to see how they stay one step ahead. Uh, and it's all about also as well, what value can you bring, right? So again, sort of being in that whole space is what value can you bring into the whole supply chain? So I think traders will still be around. I think they just need to adapt. I mean, if you look at the grain, you talk about the storage. I mean, today, a lot of the farmers have their own storage today. They've got huge amounts of storage, whereas in the past, they didn't have that. So again, Cargill as a grain company has had to adapt to those changes. And I think as we go through the whole digitalization process, I think we're going to see a lot of all changes and we just have to keep agile. Okay. I think you have to sort of also look at, I mean, in terms of digital, digitalization and, and traders, you have to look back and what, what is the trading business and, and what makes a trading business successful. And at least from our side, uh, the business model is, of course, global reach, 
uh, it's significant in the past, significant investments in global infrastructure. I can give an example, uh, and then I lead on to the answer. It's a, a billion dollar investment in 2011 in Corpus Christi terminal. Uh, it matures, uh, we sold off 80% in 2014. And then you, the take, you take the throughput, it's connected to uh, Eagle, Eagle Ford shale oil fields. Um, so the business model of a trader is, is it's global reach and, and it's global infrastructure. And it's of course financial strengths and credit lines to be able to participate in, in a higher and more and more demanding market. In terms of digitalization, yes, you have to embrace it. Uh, it's definitely something uh, that everybody has to take very serious. Uh, from our side, we think it's more additive uh, and evolutionary, more than transformative and, and revolutionary. Uh, so yes, we use it in decision making and ultimately processing time and cost uh, are inclined to come come down, and and that's a positive for for trading. Yeah. Okay, thank you, Michael. Yeah, I mean, not not too much to add. Um, basically, agree with the rest of the guys here. Um, but I think in terms of, of on the dry bulk, you know, Cape, you know, the Cape market, I think is ripe uh, for for something a bit more dramatic in terms of how it's done today. I don't think you need as many people in the chain when you charter ships is all very transparent. But if you get into the smaller sizes, I still think that's a market which um, is a bit difficult to put on a platform. Uh, you're dealing with counterparties who are not really uh, in that mode. So it will happen eventually, but I think it's gonna start with the big sizes and then it, it will develop. Okay, thank you. Um, I'm coming to the last question uh, for this panel. And this question, of course, uh, more or less in every in every session. I would like to reserve a couple of minutes for the uh, the Q and A, if any. Otherwise, I've done a prudent job in uh, in time management. <laughs> um, my last question is, um, of course, in this huge industry with so many players, um, we see a lot of uh, a lot of M and A over the last few years. Do you, do you see there's a further trend or a further need in your in, in your view of, of of consolidation in this sector? I mean, this sector in where your company is, is, is trading in. Okay, I'll, I'll start off. I mean, in the dry sector, um, so I was part of Billiton and we did a merger with BHP and I still have traumas from that. So it's not something <laughs> which, is, which is easily done. Um, I think very often it looks great on paper, but in reality it's not that straightforward. Um, we've seen a lot of activity. My view is that the market is less ripe for further mergers. There might be some, but I don't see it on a big scale. Well, why is that? Why do you think it, it's not really, the market is not really ripe for further? Oh, I mean, I, I just think that the companies that, that would make sense to merge have merged in the dry ah, bulk okay. space. Um, okay. Yeah. Rasmus, any aggressive uh, M&A on uh, your side? I'll leave that for our CEO to comment on. But okay. uh, what I can say is, and what Traffic Worth view is, that scale, scale and size matters. Uh, Trading, uh, it's a very low margin business. You need access to very competitive funding, of which Traffic World has $50 billion plus of credit lines. You need global infrastructure, uh, which is what has been invested in throughout the last many years. Uh, and I think if you have, and you need a global reach, and if you have one of these points where you're weak, chances are it's gonna get more and more difficult. 
So what I can tell you is that scale matters, and then that's how. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and I'd agree with that. I mean, if we look at Cargill's different businesses they have, they want to be sizable in all those different uh, groups. So if you think about the petroleum business, we sold that last year purely because we were quite a small player in a big pond, and to be scalable, we had to invest billions of dollars in that petroleum business. So we decided to sell it off. And I think most companies today will look at those type of things and sort of say, well, if you're not sizable, then the likelihood is they are going to try and sell some of those businesses. What I've noticed is that uh, the pure traders, at least in the palm oil trade, has uh, more or less disappeared. And you only have the producer uh, left together who does the trading like ourselves, right? So they do both the upstream and downstream. And I think that trend will continue. Um, and I think also what will happen is that uh, we will continue into uh, the destination side uh, and uh, buy up refineries there, buy up brand, uh, in this case palm oil brands uh, in the food stores uh, to have the whole value chain. And I think that will be the biggest chain and, uh, change. And in order to do that, you need to have uh, a lot of volumes and a lot of money. So that's where the energy will go, uh, I believe. Thank you. That leaves me a bit, little bit less than two minutes for any questions to the panel. Yes, is there a microphone? The gentleman in the blue blazer, bright blue, because there's a lot of blue. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, thank you so much uh, for the panels. Uh, I'm uh, Captain Govind Kumar Gautam, CEO for the Pacific World Shipping. Uh, my question is to the charters. As you said, like uh, uh, trillions of worth of uh, revenue are in profit. Uh, the charters are sitting on the panel, and maybe uh, we just add another. Maybe they're representing one third of the volume of the world, actually, maybe uh, just on a guess side. And I believe that the here, uh, what I see, this is a very interesting panel, that the most of the side we are, as a service provider, more are sitting as the owner, ship owner. And what we have seen in the last 10 years is still we are not able to recover the cycle of the ship owners who has lost worth of billions of dollars in the value. Uh, the question comes here that how do we take the responsibility, financial responsibility, who should be responsible, where the Charters, like you all are on the other side, like ADM, Bungay, Cargill, Louis Dreyfus, and on the iron ore side, maybe uh, BHP, Strata, I mean, uh, Anglo, who do not want to invest into the shipping because you feel that that's not a core of your business, whereas without the shipping trade cannot happen. It. So uh, there is a, a kind of a blind game going on, like where you are so much short, but you're not taking any long position, and the ship owners, they think there is an opportunity maybe with the short spike of the time and the sh they rush with the, um, to buy the ships and the bankers comes in between as a facilitator to facilitate ship owning where the ship owners, they don't have any control whatsoever in the cargo even though do sometime a short contract with here and their counterparty, those counterparties are also not a good counterparties. So what I see that uh, there is so much of freight where you need to cover your positions and you are in much more better hand to invest into the shipping what is that one reason I re request from each of you panel which uh, deters you or not to enter into this and putting this 
burden on the owners. Of course, there's a ship owning in itself with the business, but I, I, saw, uh, I always say it's a derived demand. It's not a direct demand. Shipping does not represent in itself, there's no consumer. I mean, the consumers are you. So, uh, can I know that what is your uh, one of the biggest deterrents which differs not you to invest into the ship owning or uh, associated freight services? Thank you. Um, let me recap that. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> so, why do you not invest long term into shipping or at least go long into shipping and provide long term charters, right? Yes. Okay. Well, I think the answer is what we discussed earlier in terms of how you employ your equity and, and, and trading houses, and I think that goes for most of us here, is it's not a strategic objective to employ significant equity into the ship owning space, which ship owners are doing better than trading houses probably, and they're structured to do it. Uh, so at least I think that's how I assess it. Okay, I mean, and, and we are long, you know, we own ships, we take long-term charters, um, so we do embrace shipping. We're not sitting around waiting for the spot market. We, we take a view on the market. Yeah, and we also take long-term charters as well, right? But there's only so much you can take. So again, we have so-called risk units. And so therefore, when those risk units are full, you can't take any more long-term, right? Unless we start selling something against that. So yes, we may have grain coming in the future. But you're never quite sure the seasonality of where it's going to be and the volume. So you cannot just go out and just have a huge, great fleet. So you've got to make sure you're managing that. And let me just follow up. In, in terms of, so why didn't we do the, I mean, from Traffic World side, why didn't we do this deal with specific ship owners? And the answer is, is very clear, because we have a better optionality and better terms than compared to what any ship owner would give us. And that's the market dictating what opportunities are in the market. Does that answer your question to a certain extent? Uh, it's been addressed partly. What I see that there has to be a kind of a joint accountability or participatory collaborative approach to the whole shipping, because I see that uh, uh, we are still not recovered uh, from the burnt of the shipping since last 10 years. What has happened after the Lehman Brothers? So who should be taking the accountability for it? Can we tell to the bankers that they are able to give the easy money, or we just say the ship owners they are going blind, or uh, as a charters where are all they are trying to service you? Thank you. Uh, was that a question or a, a comment? Excuse me, but I mean, we, we, you know, we, my question, yeah, my, my question is that who should be taking the responsibility of freight volatility, uh, being of such a gr uh, degree? Yeah, that, but uh, sorry, sorry, but it's impossible for anyone to take responsibility of yeah. the volatility. The volatility is the is a result of the market, right? So it, it, I, I don't really understand where you're heading. I I mean, each company will have a when you have so much of appetite, when you're doing a billions of dollar freight, uh, I think it makes much more sense that to have some ship owning exposure, where, uh, rather than having a ship owner going into it, and right. so, that can so, address the market. Okay, I can only talk for, for our company, but we do take, you know, we take, we look at our, exposure and then we will cover. 
i.e. via Time Shadow or via our uh, you know, current like system. Yeah, I, I think mo most of the, 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 the gentlemen uh, here on the panel, they, they take long positions. Uh, maybe not enough in your view, but uh, they, they, they do. Um, yeah, maybe we can continue this during lunch, if you don't mind. Um, the time is up. I see it all the time popping up. Um, so I would like to thank you. You also have to understand that being transparent and very open and being on the, in the spotlight is not something which comes natural for trading companies. <laughs> so um, I would like to say uh, a big thank you. You, can, you have been very open and transparent, uh, and I think it uh, was a very interesting panel. Thanks for your attention. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.